0: Hello, and welcome to Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards, and for today's discussion on political resistance during the COVID-19 pandemic, I am joined by Assistant Professor Meena Krishnamurti. She is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, where she works on social and political philosophy, as well as African-American and Indian philosophy. She's currently working on a book about Martin Luther King Jr.'s political philosophy and her expertise on racial justice and the civil rights movement made her the ideal contributor for today's episode. In what follows, we talk about the ongoing anti-racist protests around the world whether there's an obligation to participate in them, especially during a worldwide pandemic, and how they differ politically and philosophically from the anti-COVID-19 protests that have also sprung up. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question, or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises, and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hi, Mina. Welcome to the Just Emergencies podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Over the past few months, we've been seeing a lot of political protests all around the world. Can you give us a little bit of background on those protests and what your thoughts are on why people are protesting during the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Right. So I think we've been seeing a lot of protests of different natures. I think one of the global movements we're seeing are the protests to remove racist statues to take them down or alter them in some way that kind of encounters the fact that these statues are of people that were racist in very different ways. But then we're also seeing, um, obviously, a lot of movements, both in the United States and then solidarity movements against police brutality and against the incarceral system. I think in terms of thinking about the, the broader context, we're just, I think we're all quite aware of racial disparities and these protests are essentially in response to racial disparities and inequalities and racial injustice. Um, and what's been really interesting, I think, is sort of thinking about the way they sort of started in the United States as against police brutality and removing Confederate statues. But then in a way, these the, the global context is taking these um as a starting point and then using them to counter racism with their own local context. So for example, I live in Kingston, Ontario in Canada, um, and in a sort of prominent place in City Park here, we have a statue of John A. Macdonald, who was our first Prime Minister, but also quite responsible for um, the residential school system and part of the cultural uh, genocide of indigenous people of Canada. You know, there was a protest here that sort of linked the movement that was happening in Kingston to the broader global context of specifically the one in the United States that was arguing for racial justice and an end to police brutality, um, but also thinking about the links to white settler colonialism, of course, in the Canadian case. So I think in a way there's like the beginning is sort of happening in the US, but then it's being spread across the globe and localized in really interesting ways.
0: And obviously protesting during the current times is potentially a bit different from when we're not in a pandemic. And there's a lot of questions being asked around, is it uh, socially responsible to engage in political protests when COVID-19 is still spreading through the population?
1: Right, so I think there are a few things to note is that right now, in terms of looking at the data that we do have, there doesn't seem to be any community-wide spread that's resulted from participating in protests. So in general, the worry that this is somehow going to lead to community spread within a place where there's a protest doesn't seem to be borne out by the data, at least not yet. Um, The other thing I think that's really important to bring out is that any kind of sort of protest part and parcel We think about kind of the civil rights movement and what's part of nonviolent resistance is to Kind of be willing to take on a certain kind of risk And the reason to take on that risk is to express the level of significance and importance Like this is such a bad situation It's so important that I'm willing to put myself and those I care about at risk It isn't just like COVID is the only risk if we think about in general about the kind of violent backlash there can be to protest in any moment, there is always a risk that protesters are taking on. You know that you might very well get either arrested and have to deal with the calamity that that would cause for you and your family, or you could get pushed or hurt or beaten by the police. So for particularly, uh, you know, black civil rights activists, both back in the day, but also today, they're already at risk um, anytime they protest. But maybe specifically in the conditions of COVID, there might be even more so. The other thing I think I want to also make clear is the people who are protesting largely, if we think of these movements as led by Black Americans in the United States, um, these are the groups that are most significantly at risk already uh, of catching COVID and also of, of death. It varies by state by state in the United States, but we know that Black and Latino Americans are three times... As, lo- as likely to actually um, catch or contract uh, COVID. We know that death rates are starkly higher for Black and Latino Americans as well. So in a sense, those groups are already being disproportionately affected by the risks of COVID. And so in a way, stepping out into a situation that might seem more risky for others isn't really different from the day-to-day life that they're already
0: living. And do you think that changes depending on your own health status? So you said there, and I very much agree with you, that in these kind of contexts, it's such an important issue. And, you know, you kind of need to be willing to take on some personal risk. But obviously, some people are immunocompromised or live with people who need to shelter or are immunocompromised. So how does that factor? How does that factor in?
1: Right, so I think the other thing to notice in the fact that we haven't seen any community-wide spread is the precautions that people are taking. So a lot of these protests and movements are being organized by women of color, black, Latino women, indigenous women in Canada. Um, and many of these women are already, uh, actually have positions as essential care workers and are thinking, and I think are coming from a perspective of care, how do we take care of people? Very aware of the risk that might be imposed and taking steps. So when I think about the protests that I've been to here in Kingston, but I also know in the United States, you know. People have been making masks and handing them out for free, giving people hand sanitizer. At the protests I've been, there's been respect of social, or sorry, physical distancing, keeping a certain, you know, physical distance away from other people. There has been water distributed to people because it's been very hot (laughs) to make sure nobody gets dehydrated. So I think because of the kind of organizing that's being Done. There's already this attempt to mitigate risk for people who are already so obviously at risk. And again, there are immunocompromised people. But if we just look at the demographic data, the people who are people of color are being disproportionately affected by COVID. Those people are already among the most at risk. But in terms of the immunocompromised, I mean, every family, I think, and every group of you know, or individuals, thinking about the risk that they have to take on and whether this moment is right for them, and in a way, that's an individual decision. Um, But I also think that many of us are talking with people our families because even if I'm not immunocompromised um, but my mother or my partner is um, I could be inadvertently putting them at risk but I think the thing to say is you know, a lot of us are making these, these decisions in a community we're having conversations asking whether there's consent are you okay mom if I go to these protests and maybe that's inadvertently going to put you at risk. Um, so I think part of what's interesting to me is thinking about the kind of collective decision-making that's happening in this moment. Um, among, especially for me, it seems like women of color who are having these conversations and thinking about how to mitigate risk for people who might be immunocompromised. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing, I guess, your question is, like, do we have a duty? Like, if we're immunocompromised, do we have a moral duty to get on the streets? Um, I think that's, a, you know, in some ways, I think there obviously there's, if you could give a philosophical theory about that and whether that's the right thing. But for me, I think, it may depend, it's going to depend on all the the context. Like how, how risk are you? Like what, to what level are you immunocompromised? How complicit do you feel in the practices that are happening? And do you feel like you have an obligation to mitigate that? And, you know, do you have, you know, so I think there are a lot of big questions. I don't think there's an easy uh, answer. And I do think that truthfully, in lived reality, um, when we think about ethics and our duties, there are always going to be these conflicts between our duties to be out there resisting, our duties to protect the people we care about. But those always come up in the instance of nonviolent resistance. So when Black Americans were protesting during the civil rights movement, they knew they could be fired. And they're like, you know, so if you're like the main income earner, you're putting your whole family at risk, you're putting yourself at risk. And, you know, people had to make decisions about whether they ought to take that risk on, you know, on or not. And I think
0: those questions are real. I don't think they're easy to answer, but they're real. So on one end, obviously, we have the Black Lives Matter and anti-racist protests, but we also have people who... You know, uh, of the opinion that COVID is perhaps a conspiracy by the government or that governments are overstepping their bounds in the COVID-19 responses. The people who protest these matters are surely very convinced as well that they're protesting the right thing here. Do you think there's a difference there? Is there a moral difference between those kind of protests? I think that's a great question. I definitely do think there's a difference. So, again, I mean, many of
1: the protests that people are thinking about when they're thinking about the white backlash protests are happening or happened in Michigan. I mean, so if you look at kind of the dialogue around what's going on, there's this discussion about it being a violation of civil liberties. Uh, You know, you're imposing on my freedom to move and to go and occupy spaces that I want to occupy. I can't get my hair cut. Um, I can't go out and hang out with my friends at a patio and have a drink. So, we all care about liberty. Absolutely, but we have to think about what liberties are being interfered with and again about the like the, the democratic duty to make sacrifices. So I think one of the things about that's really intrinsic to the civil rights movement and thinking about Dr. King particularly but Gandhi too is like um, when the protesters are out there, they're making a big sacrifice, right, by taking on all this risk to convey an important moral message to the community and to hopefully raise consciousness. Um So part of the thought behind that movement is that there is a kind of duty to make sacrifices for democracy. And one thing we can ask ourselves about the protesters in Michigan is, is it a democratic message that they're trying to spread and convey? I can't get my hair cut. Well, we see what's going on in the United States. We had the highest increased number of cases, daily increase yesterday. Where most other countries are starting, we're trying to see, you know, the levels go down. You know, where you sacrifice the liberty to have your hair cut to promote, you know, the well-being, the most vulnerable people in your community. Um, That seems like an important democratic sacrifice to make. That's a democratic duty that we have to our fellow citizens. So I do think there's a difference. If you've got one group, like, saying, let's let's have more democracy, let's make sure that um, racial minorities aren't oppressed by the state and by the police in particular. And then you have another group, you know, who doesn't seem to have that democratic message at the heart of what they're they're fighting for.
0: And between these two groups of protests, are we seeing a difference in um, the levels of privilege, perhaps? Is there a difference in those populations?
1: Right. I think that's really an important point to, to bring out, so I'm glad you asked that. So I think when we're looking, if we look at the data specifically in Michigan around who has COVID, we're seeing um, Black Americans in Detroit predominantly, you know, high high numbers. So, again, we're seeing a disproportionate effect of COVID um, among racialized populations in the United States. And then we look at the protests in Lansing, people with their guns arguing to get their, you know, in favor of getting the haircut and storming the legislative buildings. Um, they're predominantly white. I don't know that we have really good data about their economic status, but minimally they have a kind of race-based privilege. And uh, even the kinds of things that they're asking for, it isn't like "please stop the police from killing me." It's "please let me go get my haircuts." Like I think there's a reason why social media kind of fixated on that that sign of like "I need my haircut" um, because it seems so trivial. And if that's the thing that you're fighting for, it does seem like clear evidence of a certain kind of privilege that you're fighting for, that you have. You're not worried about your grandmother dying. You're worrying about whether your hair looks nice today. That in itself, that message that's being conveyed is also
0: one of privilege. We've, we've sort of discussed matters of justice, but are there any other specific concerns that you think involvement in protests uh, raise in the context of COVID-19 and how they sort of slot into other overarching justice concerns that we might have in society
1: yeah that's a really good question so at going back to kind of the one of the early questions you asked about social responsibility people sort of suggesting that it might be socially irresponsible to protest but these public health workers are saying look the very same things that are leading to uh, people of color being disproportionately affected by covid are the same things that first of all that have to do with with good public health infrastructure. Um, And so at the same time, you've got these protests against police brutality, but in a way that's connected to systemic and expressive of systemic racial uh, inequality, prejudice, discrimination, and oppression. And so I think one of the things when we see, when we think about COVID um, and people out there protesting, Yes, race and and police brutality seems to be the trigger, but in the moment of COVID, it's it's sort of uh, drawing our attention to these broader structural processes that are contributing to the disproportionate uh, impact of COVID on people of color, particularly Black and Latino and and Indigenous Americans. Um, So I think it calls our attention to the fact that there's you know there's poverty, uh, there's high unemployment rates amongst certain racialized groups. Uh, we know that chronic stress because of dis- structural discrimination can make people's immunities compromised, make them more um, at risk for COVID. Those all have to do with the legacy of, of racism and structural uh, you know, inequalities within the United States, but also globally, it's the same phenomenon where we see Indigenous people and Black people uh, disproportionately affected, right, by, by things like COVID and other health issues.
0: And during this time of COVID, um, we've seen sort of an upswing in solidarity. Do you think that environment has fostered the anti-racist protests and has sort of made people more receptive to that? A lot of people want to say like what is leading to this moment like in this moment why why
1: are there so many people out in the streets especially when there seems to be all this risk from even leaving your home what's happening so the thing about solidarity I think it's really important to notice and many many historians are pointing um, our attention to this fact is that they seem fundamentally different than the civil rights movement in the United States so if you look at people on the streets some of the early data that's being collected for example in a study by Fisher and Hensley suggest that like 60 to 65 percent, if you look at New York and Washington, 60 to 65 percent of the protesters are white, and we even see like 55 percent or something like that in LA. More than half of protesters that are out there are white. Now that seems like there's a multi-racial coalition growing and showing up on the streets in a way that we have not seen before in the civil rights history of the United States. Um, so that seems really significant to me. Something is different. I think the question is like, what's happening? What explains these actions of solidarity? I think a lot of things. So one of them is I think the protest culture in the United States has been Growing And it's been, you know, a decade, we think about the uh, Occupy movement in the United States as kind of beginning, like sort of the beginning. And then we see Black Lives Matter building on that protest culture. And then we see, you know, post-Trump, you know, Black Lives Matter kind of down. and down. Then we see the Women's March and the Women's movement. And now we see BLM r- rise again, right? And so what we have is this long period of pro- protest culture building. And my own view is that actually, like, engaging in protests and becoming a kind of nonviolent resistor is something that has to be habituated and and cultured. So you see more and more people are getting practiced. It becomes a habit to show up on the streets, to give up your time, to take on certain risks, to be out there fighting for justice. But the other thing is, and I think this is a talk where we have to start thinking about capitalism and labor. So many of us spend so much of our time working, 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 working. When is there time to get out on the streets, even if you wanted to? Right. So now as we have more time for self-reflection and and actually to show up, I think people are showing up and the increase in time. And that really does seem like a moment where people are engaging in self-reflection. And I think with the movements of BLM in particular Black Lives Matter has given us the frame for thinking about what's happening through the lens of racial discrimination. So we're looking at COVID. We know that it's disproportionately affecting people of color, but we also have gone through this moment with BLM where we're looking through this as a kind of structural racism. Um, but that is also not only putting you know, people of color but also white folks. So in a way now their self-interest is also becoming wrapped up in it. So it's part self-interest, self-reflection, I hope consciousness raising. Um, but I also think it's important, as you already mentioned, the point about the white backlash to also recognize there may be limitations. We always want a progress narrative to say that it's getting better, people are coming. But one thing is these movements take decades and decades and decades. And maybe now while COVID's affected us, and we have more time, there are lots of people showing up. But will they show up tomorrow? When they see, uh, you know, microaggressions happening at the water cooler, will they call them out? Will they fight for raises for, you know, people of color who aren't making as much as they should be? In some ways, it's easy to show up on the street sometimes as an ally. The harder work is like at all these small levels, then also pushing for structural change all the while. And that's a really long, uh, I think... Fight that takes a lot of heart and commitment and personal sacrifice. So, on one hand, I'm feeling really optimistic about this multiracial coalition that's forming, but I'm in a kind of agnostic mode about let's see where this all goes and how long lasting and deep it is. But I do basically feel a deep sense of optimism in this moment.
0: Well, let's end on that positive note. Um, Optimism is always a good way to round out a podcast, fingers crossed. Um, So thank you very, very much for joining us today. Um, That was very thought provoking and hopefully inspiring to people to get involved as well. Thank you very much, it was great talking with you. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website, where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe We're also on Twitter as at and Rev underscore Richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk Thanks for listening and see you again for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.